Bert Cohen here, keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Talk about the dignity of man. You know, think about the word dignity, what it means. It means having some dignity, obviously, standing up for something in which uh, you believe and, uh, and fighting for that. And, boy... It often takes heroics. It takes brave people, I must say, like Edward Snowden. Like, frankly, there have been a lot of people who have stood up for what they believe in. And it was 80 years ago this fall when brave people, uh, dignified people, came from around the world and began arriving in Spain 80 years ago this fall to join the fight alongside democracy-loving Spaniards against the fascist military takeover of their government. About 3,000 Americans were part of this international effort to save democracy in Spain and hopefully prevent a second world war. They called themselves the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Every uh, battalion, they were actually battalion uh, from around the world, picked a national hero to name themselves after. Most of the Americans from the Abraham Lincoln Brigade came from the cities on the east and west coasts, but at least 14 of them came from little, mainly rural, New Hampshire. What was it like for them? Why did they risk everything to fight in what our guest today calls a foreign war in a distant country, a fight uh, the U.S. was officially staying out of? Since it was then illegal to even travel to Spain, these young men and women, black and white, had their passports taken away. Imagine what that would feel like. So returning to America was itself a serious challenge. The Spanish government a few years ago granted citizenship to all survivors of this international effort to save them. But today, 80 years after the autumn of 1936, there is not a single American veteran of the Spanish Civil War still alive, not surprisingly. Their experiences is hardly noted in most mainstream history books. In fact, I don't know if any history books include it, yet many who do know about the Abraham Lincoln Brigade agree these volunteers' heroic service to democracy should be a lesson widely taught to young people today. With us today to consider what happened and why 80 years ago and why they did it 80 years ago, is Douglas Wheeler, Professor of History Emeritus at the University of New Hampshire. Doug Wheeler, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Oh, it's great to be with you, Bert, and uh, I admire your program, and uh, good to be here. Well, it's it's good to be talking uh, about this, and uh, you've written a paper 
about the New Hampshire volunteers in Spain's Civil War from 1936 through 39. Why did you write it? What was your purpose in, in writing this paper? Well, my purpose uh, was two, really. One, to get the knowledge out um, to schools. And I've given uh, this paper at, uh, at Oyster River High School. And uh, secondly, to get it to the general public that uh, the Spanish Civil War really was a critical part of the 20th century. And it was, um, uh, there's a debate among historians about the Spanish Civil War. And one of the debates is, uh, often it is said that um, the Spanish Civil War was a rehearsal right. for World War II. It was many things. It was actually many wars. You can answer that in several ways. One is, what, 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 what was the war all about if it was many wars? It was a war between the workers and the employer and the, and the bosses, a, a, a war about where the church was uh, opposed by those who were uh, against the Catholic Church right. in Spain, which was so powerful. In other words, it was, were, uh, it was a war between the clericals and the anti-clericals. It was a war between the large landowners and the landless peasants. It was a war between the military and those who felt there should be more uh, peaceful uh, approaches to, uh, not violent approaches to politics. Uh, it was the fourth such civil strife in Spain going back to the 1830s. So there really were four Spanish civil wars, but this is the one that made the headlines in the 20th really? century. It was bloodiest. Um, uh, 600,000 people, uh, including those who were executed by Franco's side after the war, died in the Spanish Civil War, and a, a roughly half of the American um, yeah. volunteers didn't come back. They weren't all killed, but they were. Um, hmm. So an another point about the war is that if it wasn't a rehearsal for World War II, it was a rehearsal, in, in a sense, for the fascist use of weapons. Yes. And the Nazis and the Italians, the Germans, they used um, uh, uh, bombing practice. Yeah. They did a great deal of using uh, new planes. They developed uh, the Air Force, uh, of, of, of the Luftwaffe, yes. based part of its experience on what they did in the Spanish Civil War. And um, uh, dive bombing, uh, terror bombing of uh, civilians, yes in the yeah, cities, bombing of, of the Spanish cities. And of course, Guernica, there are all these cultural sort of memories that come out through the pa Picasso's painting of Guernica. Um, and also, I think one of the most is, is our political language, our political dictionary is given a word, a phrase, from the Spanish Civil War, which we use today. What's that? And that is the fifth column the, the phrase the fifth column, which which means in the uh, sort of the political dictionary, and it's in all of our dictionaries today, um, it means uh, a group of people from behind your lines who 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 rise up to attack uh, the, uh, the 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 force. In other words, say you're in a city and you're being Madrid was mm -hmm. being besieged. Right. This is the context of how the word came about. Gen General Mola was on Franco's side, and he gave a radio broadcast where he, as they were about to attack, Franco's army was attacking Madrid. Madrid was held by the Republicans, and um, 
uh, General Mola said, I am sending four columns to attack Madrid, ah. and but there is a fifth column which behind their lines inside the city will rise up to support us. Uh-huh. So ever since then, and the media picked this up in 1930, this was in 1930, uh, late 36, um, and there's a dispute about uh, w- when did he say it, but General Mola, who later was killed, by the way, mysteriously in a plane accident, mm-hmm. eliminating him so Franco could take power. There's even a rumor that uh, uh. the nationalist anti-aircraft uh, shot down his plane, <laughs> Mola's plane. We don't know what the actual truth is. Anyway, he was gone. But Mola did say it. And so the fifth column, which is also used... Uh, all over the English-speaking world, still yeah. to mean a subversive group of people from behind your lines rises up to attack. Uh, so in the McCarthy era, it was used uh-huh. as, a, as a term for, but in World War II, it was used by the Allies to be those who might attack you from within, and you had to be careful uh-huh. of them. Anyway, Interesting. So, yeah. so it's, it's really with us, uh, the, the, so yeah. many lessons, and that's... You know, one thing I was I was reading uh, recently about how history, the, the mythic history, the history that we generally get taught that's all, you know, uh, whitewashed and, and clean, requires forgetting. You know, you can't have these myths mm. if you don't forget. And there's been a tremendous amount of, I think, official forgetting. And one thing that I, I think that all, uh, well, you know, conscientious historians, including yourself, do is... Uh, <laughs> Try to make it so we don't forget, so we don't, uh, you know, leave it behind and, and ignore the realities of history. And that fifth column uh, certainly is uh, important to, to understand what it's about and where it came from. Now, setting the stage for, for these young New Hampshire people to, to go, why? All right, the year is 1936. People at the time, remember very clearly the First World War, which was obviously horrible industrial killing, and, and people were very, very afraid of a Second World War happening. And I had a professor in college, actually, who called this the space between the First World War and the Second the long weekend, because it was really continuing yes. the same thing. Why mm-hmm. was it illegal for Americans to fight in Spain? Well, the, the, the context of... Um, uh, the the U.S. foreign policy at the time, um, President Roosevelt was in office, but the uh, but the Congress was very afraid of getting involved in a, a foreign war, right. and they were um, uh, they were also um, concerned that maybe uh, the the uh, some of the things that had helped start World War One and get us involved, they were worried that the arms sellers would perhaps. Uh, become so committed to one side or the other, they would um, maybe get us into another war. So there was that. Uh, there were congressional committees which investigated the arms trade in the 20s and 30s, going back to World War One. And um, uh, w- 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 the way our arms trade worked was that we sold mainly, almost totally, to the the French and the British on the Allied side. And so one argument was, well, because we were so committed to getting the money back from the arms sellers, you know, because they owed us, there was a big debt. They couldn't pay pay for all the arms. 
Uh, and so one reason may have been, well, we got into World War I, not for the great reasons, but for this. But that was, <laughs> but that was in the mind of some Congress people. And then they, they also were concerned that uh, they didn't know much about the Spanish War. Hmm. Um, so they decided to pass neutrality acts, and there were three or four of them. And they said, the neutrality acts said, uh, they're, they're, we will not uh, send any, we will embargo all arms sales to any side because if we favor one or the other we might get dragged in so there was a war there was a neutrality act about arms embargo so we embargoed at least in theory any arms to any side in the spanish civil war however we do know as uh, uh, professor or dr hoschild said in yeah. his great book on the spanish civil war, that in fact american oil and gasoline companies actually supplied Franco's side in many ways sort of undercover. Yeah, yeah. And and this was definitely a support that helped. Uh, um, but let let me go back to um well, why was it illegal? Yeah. Well, one of the ways we tried to stay neutral was to make sure that citizens didn't uh go to the country that was fighting. So the way to do that is to uh somehow make their passports. And this was the first time in American history in the history of the State Department, that a passport was stamped. Uh, you could get your passport, but it would say, not valid for travel in Spain. Right. Later, in the Cold War, it would say, not valid for travel in Cuba, North, North Vietnam, and North Korea, right. and, and some other countries, Albania. Um, so that precedent in American law goes back. This is another thing that started in the Spanish Civil War, this restriction of American um, citizens' rights to travel. Uh, later in the Supreme Court, uh, citizens' rights to travel without restriction was um, reached the Supreme Court, and the case was won. But this was oh. long after the Spanish Civil War. Anyway, so, but see, it was very tricky the way the Americans were uh, recruited to go fight in the war. Uh-huh. Uh, all of them were volunteers, but some of them, uh, uh, there was a system that the Communist Party had in Europe and in North America, which was that the communist parties in the big cities and in the capitals would have active recruitment systems which involved people getting to the train stations and getting getting people to ports and also providing some papers. And so most mm. of the people from New Hampshire went through Boston. Sure. In fact, we do know that one of the, the one of the Finnish guys from Newport, New Hampshire, he his neighbors knew that there was all this secrecy about how um, uh, this was Otto uh, uh, yeah. Kempenem, a Newport resident from the Finnish-American community, and there still are, there's still a big Finnish-American community in Newport, New Hampshire. Right. We met some of them. Um, but neighbors said, well, there were secret instructions of what, what house to go to in Boston, where to go in the port, and all that. So there was a little bit of that. Um, and, and of course... Uh, some of the people, when they got to Spain, they didn't have their passports. Some did. Later, when they arrived in Spain, their passports were were sent to the American embassy mm. because they needed visas to get around or whatever. So the embassy would then try to stamp them not valid. For, it sounds talk about a futile action. Right. Anyway, there was a lot of that. It is important, though, to establish that this was the Spanish Civil War, the rehearsal for World War II. It was 
a rehearsal for the failure of Western diplomacy uh, to successfully uh, defend legal governments and also to fight fascism. And because the, the, the farcical diplomatic story on the Spanish Civil War was the creation of a... In order to stop arms getting to either side, the diplomats in Britain and France set up something called the Non-Intervention Committee, which was a total farce. Basically, the Non-Intervention Committee allowed the fascist powers to give arms to Franco. And the, the, the those who wanted to defend the Republic were not able to do this. And this was an example of how eventually appeasement at uh, mm-hmm, Munich where mm-hmm. it was all part of the same set. So in, a, in that in terms of arms development and new weapons, um, it was a it was a nation by nation case. But uh, if Franco had lost the Spanish Civil War, uh, most historians mm-hmm. believe that this would not have discouraged Hitler. Huh. It would have been totally ta- he would have gone on and done his things in Eastern Europe anyway. You know, Spain wasn't Eastern Europe. So, in other words, that... It, but it was, in a way, a very vital prelude to World War II in sure. that it showed that a legally elected, uh, coherent government, which was in control in Spain, uh, could not get support to defeat an illegal rebellion. Yeah, Th- the, this this was a very bad precedent. Boy, a, a terrible precedent, really. And so, I, I, I've wondered, uh, if you just tuned in, by the way, Bert Cohen here, talking with uh, Professor Emeritus Douglas Wheeler about 80 years ago this fall, when uh, Americans went to defend Spain illegally. And uh, they lost, let's face it, they lost. And what I've wondered about in terms of the idea of rehearsal, if, and actually, I, I believe in the Nation magazine, there was a story uh, talking about the Spanish Civil War, and the headline of the story was a second world, a second world war? Question mark. You know mm. what if? You know, there's lots of what ifs, and I think it's legitimate for people yeah. looking at history to look at the what ifs. What if uh, the U.S. and England and France, which all stayed away because they were nervous as heck after the experience in the First World War, if they had defended? Uh, Spain and showed Hitler and Mussolini that hey guess what guys we're not going to sit back and do nothing you know what, what, what do you think had the had France and England might that not have been I mean you talk about rehearsal for the Second World War might that not have been a message to Hitler that you know some people are going to fight back and they didn't that's a very good uh, what if of uh, history well let's go back to um, how uh, would you rank the compare the two strengths of the Republic versus Franco's Nationalists? Oh, wow. uh, the Republican side was known as the Loyalists yes. or the Republicans because there was and, a king in it. You know, the, they were well, the to, king had already abdicated. Oh, he had. Yeah, well, but they were loyal um, but, to the government. Yeah, and then the national the Franco's armies were known as the mm-hmm. Nationalists. Okay, right. um, unfortunately for the Republic. Um, a larger number of officers with professional training and experience had joined Franco's army. Plus, he had the Moors from Morocco, who were a a legion that were uh, brutally uh, effective, but they were uh, killers. And then you had the Foreign Legion, who were made up of many different European nationalities, um, but they were sort of... They they, uh, controlled the Moroccans. Then you had... um, uh, 
uh, more of the Navy joined the uh, Franco side, but the enlisted ranks in the Navy were against them. So you had ships where the the sailors would take over the ship and shoot the officers. So this was part of the civil. This was part oh. of it. Um, the uh, the weaponry, no doubt, a tremendous advantage of the uh, of Franco's side in that Hitler's and uh, Mussolini's armed forces gave them a lot of uh, yeah of, of, of pretty good uh, equipment. Yeah. Now the Soviet Union decided to back. They they were late, but in this month, eighty years ago, the Soviet uh, support started to come to help the republic. Uh, advisors. Um, some troops, uh, tanks, uh, old rifles from before World War One. They mm. weren't always that great. Yes, but they hear. gave them quite a bit at first. But gradually, toward the end of '38, they began the Soviet Union, for political reasons, mm-hmm. began to withdraw their support because of Munich gave them a little lesson, saying Hitler's going to get it. But so we don't want to uh, uh. we don't want to alienate him, and we may have to sign a treaty with him. So they started to withdraw their support in late 38. Stalin was a cunning type, you know, on this. So let's just say the advantages were with Franco's forces in many ways beyond just the arms. So if we had, um, I don't think we would have intervened, but the British and French could have certainly sent an equal number of weapons to the Republic, and they could have, it would have prolonged the war, more killing. Um, And the other thing is, if some parts of Spain might have broken away from central Spain, Madrid, if they were, the Basques and the Catalans were fighting for their cultural independence, their language, that was part of it. So they could have sort of become more separate, separatist, and that might have uh, complicated things. You know, a little bit, if, if, say, Lebanon might have been an example, what if foreign countries come in and back one side in Lebanon? What's the future? See, there's this issue of... Hmm, interesting. So I think in terms of international diplomacy, uh, the great failure was the Non-Intervention Committee failed to prevent the fascists from giving a lot of support in arms. And if they, if they had succeeded, it would have been a more equal... Contest, but I think political factors um, that weakened the Republican side was the, you know, the Republican side included not only Republicans and liberal monarchists who felt democracy was a good idea, but they wanted the king back, uh, and also socialists. It also included communists, but anarchists. And the anarchists, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, armed units, although they were brave were not a f- very effective, and there were a lot of them. For sure. And therefore, if they, they weakened the military effort. There was a debate in the, uh, in the Republic was between those who said the war must come first, and then there were those who said the, re- the revolution must come first. And what was oh, the revolution? Yes. Right. The revolution was a far-left uh, movement, where the where the peasant uh, landless farmers would take over the the lands that they um, they felt the owners had taken from them. They would control the factories. They would run the businesses. They would take over most of the government, but on anarchist principles. The that was a contradiction oh, because yeah. anarchism means no 
government. You don't like government. Right. So the anarchists would burn all records in the town halls uh, the, so that you couldn't pay your taxes because they didn't have you register. Uh, they, they believed in free love. Uh, they were they they were they felt marriage was uh, oppressive, not probably. a good thing, yeah. and they also believed that money should be abolished. So yeah. this would be, you see, part of the democracy of the republic was they they uh, the government tried to live with these very different kinds of republics, and it's a it was really kind of a balancing act. And in some ways, if they'd been encouraged, it would have been good. But the but the Western Europe were afraid that um, not only might this lead to a third wor- second world war but it would lead to revolution the the revolution in the British yeah. and the French working classes which which the governments would so they they really didn't know um, in that way you know the, the World War two story is also a social story which some of which is not told yeah a lot of so, history is, is yeah. not told and I think my sense, I, I read a lot about the First World War, too, and my sense was that there were a lot of imperial powers who didn't want to lose their power, and they were scared to death of revolutions mm-hmm. happening. I mean, Britain, it was sure yeah. convenient to, for, for England to get the focus off of uh, possible revolution in Ireland, and uh, right. you know, yeah. there were mutinies in the French army, and they were, they were scared yeah. of that. They, they wanted to keep their power. So history is always... Uh, less simple than it seems. I actually heard a uh, a Republican activist here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, say, that, "Oh, history's simple. <laughs> <laughs> it's anything but simple." Uh, and yeah, I, I so fascinating. You know, there's so much you can look at history, and and I think it was um, Mark Twain who said that history may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. You you gave me a map, which I I think you probably showed the students of what Spain looked like during the Spanish Civil War. And it was being it was split into many different political regions. And the whole yeah, anarchist thing, there was the communists, there was the POUM, which I'm not sure what P-O-U-M stands for, but I bet you do. And um, I couldn't help but be reminded of what Syria and Iraq look like today. You know, you see these maps of where the uh, Islamic State is and it's just a total. Yeah, it's 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 very chaotic. Um, can we talk a little about the um, New Hampshire? Oh, people I wanted to for sure. Went. They were they were. Yeah, I thought they were about thirteen. You say they were fourteen. Fourteen. We and found fourteen. Yeah. Who, who, t- yeah. Let's let's talk about those fourteen or so Let, men. Let's talk about the students because I think sure. that um, I hope maybe some of your listeners might know the families of these five people I'm going to mention who were. Uh, university or college students, two Dartmouth students, and three UNH students, because I would like to make an appeal. If you know anyone in these families, we've been trying to trace where they are, um, and we know where the Barton uh, Carter family in Nashua is, Yes, but um, and he was definitely one of the heroes of these, Um, and he joined the British Brigade, and he was killed in battle or executed by Franco's side, we're not sure which. Hmm. Um, but Barton Carter's father gave money to UNH's Museum Art, and the Carter Gallery is still there with a big plaque. So hmm. that's a UNH. Anyway, the names, the names of, the, of the five students, three UNH students, Daniel Fitzgerald, class of 39, from Dover, Matthew Madison, 
also Matt Mattison, M-A-T-I-S-O-N, yes. from Dover, class of 37. And finally, Owen Jefferson, a biology master's degree, 1933 class, who later, tragically, um, he survived the war and went to teach in the Midwest, but he was so harassed yeah. by the McCarthy people about the fact that he had joined the Communist Party as a student and he'd gone to Spain that he committed suicide. So there's a very sad... Uh, now, the two Dartmouth students, Joe Dallet, class of 27, and um, a guy named James Moore from the same class of 1927. And they were labor organizers. You see, that was part of the, the social political context of these um, students who would go... Just two Dartmouth students and three UNH students. Um, and they were interested in uh, progressive politics. Some of them weren't sure what the Spanish Civil War was all about, but hmm. it was something which was a fight against fascism. Right. And so that's why they went to fight. That, but they weren't sure what the government was like in Spain. They mm. So it was a real, uh, a very amazing adventure um, that they they went into adventure. in 1936. Some of them arrived in 37, and most of them... Uh, who survived had uh, left by the end of 38 when they withdrew. The uh, government of the Republic decided they'd play the game of the International Diplomats and Non-Intervention Committee, and in order to make the Republic seem more open to negotiation, they withdrew the international brigades yeah. in a final parade in Barcelona, Madrid. Yeah. They marched by in uh, the fall of 1938, and they were gone. I, I often wondered, I never could figure out why the Republican leadership decided to withdraw the foreign volunteers before the war was over. And, and They felt that this might uh, put pressure on the fascist powers to pull back a bit. To pull back their foreign fighters as yeah, well. And, and their equipment, no, and so that didn't, uh, that didn't work. But basically the Republic was dying then, and the uh, war was... Was in the over. stages of being lost. And, and I will uh, say one, one of the things that uh, my old uh, friend Abby Hoffman observed about relations between the right and left, and you can't, I mean, this is right and left here. I mean, there's the right, the fascists, the nationalists, and the left, the loyalists, the Republicans, a lot of them are communists, anarchists, uh, socialists, is that the right is sadistic, the left is masochistic. And this is exactly what happened. Interesting. Barcelona yeah. just, it, it was a, you know, the whole Catalan region, as I understand it, was, was pretty much uh, anarchist. And guess what? It doesn't work. You can't really have lateral democracy there. It just, you know, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't hold out. So the, the communists, my understanding was they were the, the strongest, but they didn't call all the shots either. So it, it, it was, it was very, very uh, uh, messy. So the, uh, the uh, international brigades left, and they were. They, I don't think they uh, left volunteer. They, 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 the government um, felt they should leave, and so they organized a victory parade yeah. and said thank you and goodbye. But this raises the question also of other writers like George Orwell, who were there. Because we know about Hemingway being there, um, but George Orwell did an amazing book called Homage to Catalonia. And he had an incredible experience. Six months in Spain, George Orwell was on the side of the Republic, and he fought for an anarchist uh, uh, Trotskyist unit called P.O.U.M. P.O.U.M., yeah. Yeah, the P.O.U.M., which became the target of the Communist Party because 
the Communist Party was backed by Stalin, and Poom was a, considered to be a uh, Trotskyist, although it was in many ways more anarchist. <coughs> but they didn't like the anarchists either. Right. So one of the things his book did, and um, he was... Uh, uh, he got some pretty tough reviews in England for homage to Catalonia because a certain group of the left said, no, everything Orwell is saying is a lie. Huh. And his main theme when the book was, there's a secret war going on in the Republic between right. the, the Communist Party, which has got a lot of Stalinist backing, and the, the anarchists and the Trotskyists Trotskyist, yeah. over who's going to be in, who, uh. whose ideology will win out. It was a brutal fight, and... Poom basically was almost wiped out. Yeah, and they were, and and this, but the the press wasn't reporting this. So oh. when Orwell's book came out in '38, homage to Catalonia, uh, it divided the left in England because there were those who said, "Well, we we know that, but we don't want to talk about it." So, so well, uh, Orwell said, "Well, aren't we? In a, isn't this a democracy in England? Can't we discuss this?" Wow. It's an amazing thing. He was badly wounded, shot in the neck. Orwell was invalided out, and that sort of saved him because a few days uh, after his departure, his wife went with him, by the way, and was close to the front during the time Orwell was there. And um, a few days later, he would have been arrested and shot, probably, certainly imprisoned, and then shot as a member of a Pum militia uh, unit. Shot by the communists? Shot, shot by the, those on the Republican side who were, who were with the, the Stalinist side. So, oh, man. You know, yeah, that, it was really... Internal uh, fighting was and just... And he made... Uh, he, uh, got, he somehow got back to England. And, and then it took him a long time to recover. The latest biography I read suggests that his early death was partially a result of the um, trauma and exposure in the six months in Spain because he was outside in the winter without good medicine, and he got a very bad, uh, uh-huh. his pneumonia got worse. Ooh, that pneumonia can be tough. Yeah, so It can be yeah. tough. Anyway, uh, the Orwell story is amazing. I'd say there are about 30 books now on uh, hmm. Orwell biography and on the time he was in Spain. Really? They go, they, every day he was there, he had a diary. He, so we know a lot of, but, but one of his wonderful stories of the Spanish character is, he said, well, my unit commander sent a telegram from Madrid before he came back, and we were supposed to get the telegram. It was coming on a train. Well, then the train got diverted. <laughs> the telegram never arrived. Uh. And he said, this is the story of Spain. One half of Spain is killing the other half. And he said, the Spanish Civil War was that the, the bourgeoisie of Spain, sure. which was fairly small, but it was also including the upper class who had uh, almost total power and had all the... Right. And they were certainly backed by by the church and the military and by the big landowners. Yes. That part of Spain saw a chance to defeat um, the growth of the power of the, wor- of the working class, which was the one time they were able to come up for a while. So in, thir- in, in 36 to 39, they actually had some clout and th- suppressing them was what the goal was of the Franco side it's a little more complicated than that because of the murders and the anger about the killing of certain people 
who were conservative um, mm-hmm. parliamentarians, and so angered Franco's supporters that this was one reason they decided on July 18th to declare a coup d'etat, or as they say, a golpe, meaning blow for a military coup, because of the murder of a leading politician a few days before. This was the last straw. So there was a, a vengeance, sure. blood a blood feud thing. Well, it's nice that there was and a little... Both sides. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad yeah. there was a little bit of fighting on, on the, uh, I was going to say Hitler side, because I was reminded of yeah. the Night of the Long Knives when Hitler, yeah. you know, blew away his competitors for power. I forget he, what year that because was. Because the military wanted to get rid of those people. They were not... Uh, the, the German military made a deal with Hitler saying, well, if you, you deal with the, your uncontrollables and... Um, you can do anything you want, uh-huh. but we'll take care of the military. Uh-huh. There was a, a, a devil's bargain there. <laughs> well, it sounds like it was uh, somewhat so. similar here. And uh, so there were 14. New Hampshire yeah. is different. Mo- you know, the vast majority of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade volunteers were from the big cities on the two coasts, where yeah. there were powerful labor unions and an active communist party. And, you know, being a communist in the 30s was not that big of a deal, because they were the only ones talking about uh, uh, civil mm. rights and things like that and anti-racism. So, and, and it was a terrible time. But New Hampshire was not a big city. I don't know if there were powerful labor unions, but it was quite different, especially in the 30s. What was the environment in New Hampshire like, uh, the culture from which they rose up to fight in Spain? That's a good question, a very good one, Bert. Um, Well, the Depression had also hit uh, New Hampshire uh, pretty badly, so there was a shortage of jobs, a lot of unemployment, nobody had any money, Um, wages were low. And um, the federal government helped with... um, uh, programs such as the Civilian Conservation Corps and the WPA. Workers. I wish we do them again. I really do. Well, the UNH Outdoor Pool was built by the WPA. Really? Yeah, oh, in 1938 yeah. it opened. Excellent. and um, But things were rough. But what's interesting about the list of 14 is that f- besides these five students, there were f- no less than three or four uh, volunteers from the same farm in Washington, Missouri, uh, I'm Washington, sorry, New Washington, New Hampshire. New Hampshire, called the Chase Farm, which apparently still exists. Does it? Yeah. And the the uh, the the woman, the, the the mother of the Chase family, became the president of the New Hampshire Communist Party. And on her tombstone, which is still there in the cemetery in Washington, New Hampshire, I've got a picture of it. There is a big hammer and sickle. Oh, no kidding. Remember, the Spanish people basically didn't know what the hammer and sickle meant before this war started, when it appeared in graffiti everywhere. As was true in Portugal in 74, you'd see things on the streets of Lisbon, red uh, the night before everybody gone around with spray guns, and there were big uh, hammers and sickles, and also long-live communism or whatever. Um, Most people didn't know in the rural areas, had no contact with this. Oh, so this was a new thing. Huh. I, and I, I, anarchism in a way was easier because nobody likes the government. <laughs> that was their view. No, and there's there's left anarchists so, and right anarchists. But the the, the communist today. view which was in some ways more practical supporting the republic was look if we lose the war that's the end. We've got to win the war first. Uh, so these methods of the uh, anarchists and the revolution we have to wait for that war first revolution next. Uh, and this was 
This was a, a very debatable issue. Boy, I guess so. so. And and debate often involves yeah. blood, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the shedding of blood. Now, I actually knew uh, Nora Chase uh, from the Chase Farm. He's, oh, did you? Yeah. Nora oh. Chase. I don't know what her status is now, but I know she was definitely related to the Chase Farm in Washington, New Hampshire. So that oh, was kind of fascinating. A, yeah, yeah, that was kind of a, a breeding ground. She'd probably be, uh, I think, in her early seventies now. Something. I like should that. look Not her up. Bad. Yeah, Nora Chase, and I used to see her. Uh, in all uh, uh, full disclosure, I'm on the board of governors of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives. We need to preserve it. I obviously care passionately about this issue, and teaching kids about it is just so important. These are real heroes. Americans don't have, American kids especially, don't have a lot of heroes these days. But the Chase Farm, th- th- mm. there was a sort of a, a breeding ground for, for communists, I guess. That's because Mrs. Chase, whose first name I can't remember, I can't she had a very old family. She was actually um, brought before a committee in Concord ah. during the McCarthy era, and she ah. was, they tried to arrest her or something, but but... But she was just a member of the Communist Party, which was a legal party. Sure, in the absolutely. So that didn't go. But there were hearings where Mrs. Chase got on the radio. She was actually in the media in the 50s. And then later she died. Uh, uh, but she insisted that on her tomb yeah, on her, uh, was, was, was the, 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 the hammer and sickle. And, and were the members of the Chase family that were part of the fourteen? Uh, yes, several of them were. Her one of her sons was um, Homer Bates Chase, uh-huh. who was um, from that farm, and he was sort of the the main one from the family. But there were others they were part uh, of who were um, Richard Chester Thompson was a, also a Chase farm worker, and there was Fred Cop C O P P, who was another Chase farm person, but he was a neighbor. So there were. That's amazing. And Just a rural I don't know farm. if I've ever been to Washington, New Hampshire. This We're coming to you from from New Hampshire here. We uh, do podcasts all over the place. But I'm guessing it's a pretty small town. It is quite small. I just have pictures of the of the cemetery. Oh my goodness, my goodness. <laughs> and yet, so most of the guys were from the big city, labor unions, yes. you know, some terrific guys. You know there. that Vermont story of why, uh, why does every Vermont school have a cemetery uh, next door? That's because our students are kind of slow. <laughs> now, I don't know what was true in New Hampshire. Oh, but. my goodness. Well, yeah, New Hampshire is different. <laughs> Vermont is to the left of New Hampshire. Let us not forget that. We yeah. mentioned Barton Carter. I f- yes. Back, I got to oh. tell you, Doug, in my college a long time ago, there was a Barton Carter. I don't oh, know anything really? about it. Now, I went to college a long time ago. Well, your college was? Wyndham College that was in Putney, Vermont. But I think mm. he was a professor. I need to see if, if he's really, mm. I mean, maybe it was coincidence that his name was Barton Carter. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. But he saw, and you mentioned earlier that, that his family uh, had, uh, has honored him. He saw and did a lot in Spain. He, uh, Barton Carter was one of my heroes, um, of the 20th century, um, which I would rank with some of the people in World War II who um, rescued refugees at at, at risk of their lives and who sort of sacrificed themselves. But Barton Carter really had nothing to do with the Spanish Civil War. At first, he was a Williams College student. He was maybe a sophomore or junior. And the war came as he was starting his sophomore or junior year, 
He'd gone to a very fancy prep school. You all have heard the name of St. Paul's School in Concord. Uh So there are probably some records on him there. Um, And so he had a friend, though, in England who was um, uh, needed somebody to help. uh, And a college student was a good. So this was a job. So he went over in the summer of 1936 to England. Somebody there knew someone in Spain who was trying to... uh, escape from Spain and they had jewel they had jewels or whatever and so his job was to go there and try to help this British woman be evacuated and he got involved in the Spanish Civil uh, War uh-huh. for the Republic he saw how terrible the conditions were in Barcelona and in Madrid he saw how children uh, because there were so many the whole story of orphans in the Spanish Civil oh. War is tragic mm. so many people lost their parents and so he began to help the orphans on the Republican side, and he set up home, um, orphanages and orphan um, uh, houses in Catalonia. And he, he really became a rescue person. Wow. And then he became so angry at the uh, bombing that the fascists did of Barcelona and other cities that he joined the British battalion and went to war, went to the battlefront, got into combat, and then he was either killed in battle or he was executed um, mm. as a prisoner of war. Mm. And that, that was it. And his parents took a long time to find out what happened to him, mm. but eventually they did. And so in Nashua, they put a plaque up on um, the Red Cross house in Nashua, which is still there apparently, the plaques honoring him. And... Um, there may be a scholarship somewhere. I don't know. Nice. But I've just, uh, I've been in touch with the Carter family, but there's no UNH connection. So the reason I, I asked the UNH alumni magazine to publish this, but we, since we couldn't trace any current relatives, they decided uh, they wouldn't do it. Uh, but I, So I'm still working on getting more information. But, well, they, they do certainly yeah. deserve a lot more recognition. I think uh, Definitely. Know, now yeah. that, that the uh, volunteers of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade have all passed away. Uh, yeah, the last one died in the last year. Yeah, That's he right. Was, he was 101. Last, last volunteer. And I, I was incredibly honored to get to know some of them. Just yeah. talk about heroes. Just amazing guys. And, uh, and you came to my class, Bird. Remember at UNH oh, a couple right. of years ago, uh, before I retired, uh, dealing with the plaque. The plaque. <laughs> we'll tell that story briefly here. I don't want to take... Uh, Maybe I, I shouldn't have brought it up. No, Sorry. no, no it, had to, it had to come up somehow. I, I, when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, I noticed uh, on the walls there, were, there was a plaque to the uh, freedom fighters from Hungary in 1956. Nobody in that freedom fight was from New Hampshire, but I knew there were people from New Hampshire... And we tried to get a plaque. Uh, we got the money for a plaque. We put up a plaque. But the Manchester Union leader, which across the country you may have heard of, right-wing newspaper, said, communists in the state house." And the plaque came down about an hour after it was up. And it sits in a vault. So the people of New Hampshire are protected from the dangers of the plaque. But, uh, you know, the, some of the best history is hidden history. Let's face it here. The stuff that, you know, they don't want you to remember is the most important stuff. You write that one of the students, Daniel, from from UNH, Daniel Andrew Fitzpatrick, was described as politically backward, and then uh, Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald, yeah, that's what yeah, I meant. Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald. Yeah. and a, another graduate uh, from UN from UNH, James Moore Jones, was actually arrested for slandering the military and political leadership. 
So I guess they were part of some of the political battles within the international brigades. Yeah, they were. Uh, Jones survived to uh, a, a great old age and actually wrote a book, and I, either Dartmouth has it or UNH, uh-huh. of memoirs that included his. So Jones uh, did a lot afterwards to uh, sort of continue his progressive politics. Dallet tragically, was killed in battle. And Joe Dallet. He was the much more um, active labor organizer, uh-huh. even when he was a student. And he went to Spain as part of this, of the Communist Party's, you know, the way they'd set up the recruitment system. And then Dallet became, a, uh, became an officer and was killed in battle. So the Dallet has written up in some of the histories of the American. Uh, I think it's Peter Carroll's. Yes. Yeah, he's in there. Carroll's done some very good research on the Spanish Civil War. Oh, just, volunteers. just fabulous. And yeah. I'm trying to remember the name of that book. Oh, Peter, I'm sorry. I can't remember the name of it now. But uh, Peter Carroll, yeah. C-A-R-R-O-L-L. It'll come to me probably before the end of the show. But coming from New Hampshire, I mean, was there... There was kind of a uniqueness, I guess, about the New Hampshire veterans' role, as you say. New Hampshire's stoicism, pride, and sense of independence were put to work in a foreign field. Say more about that, what you meant by that, please. You know, what is it about the New Hampshire spirit of, of independence, stoicism, and pride that, uh, that, that was put to work in the foreign field? Well, I, I think uh, those qualities are... Um uh, our, our New Hampshire's, and I think this was true in the 30s, too. It's a small number of um, of people, 14, but of course we had a right. smaller population. Oh, yeah, then. I can't imagine back then. Um, and I, I do think what, um, the uh, the students who, there was a group, I think it was called the Liberal, the Liberal Club at UNH, um, discussed politics a lot, and one or more of the UNH students were members of that. Marion James mentioned that this club was known as the more liberal students were there in the 30s. So there was some, you know, they would even maybe invite speakers to campus. So the whole issue of freedom of speech, yes. what, is a, what is a university? It should be a place where the first uh, uh, quality should be freedom of speech, uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of... Uh, of the press, uh, so that was part of the New Hampshire story, too. It was also um, because we've made a study of the motives of the volunteers. It wasn't uh, as simple as just, oh, I've discovered a war to go to, because and this is a war where the fascists are on one side, and so we can fight fascism by going to Spain. It was much more complex than that. They were probably three different um, uh, basic reasons for volunteers uh, from the United States going. One was you were very much involved with with the Communist Party, and the Communist Party was actively recruiting volunteers for the Spanish Civil War. They had a system which, again, you mentioned most of the volunteers were from the ports yes. on the east or western coast. Sure. Well, the ports, a port of Boston, was the way the New Hampshire people got out to the war, got to the, get the ship to go over to Paris, sure. to France, yeah. and then they made their way to the Pyrenees and sometimes had to walk across oh, the Pyrenees. Yeah. Um, so the ports were were there, um, but you did have a uh, um, uh, 
a kind of a, a system. So that's one what was the Communist Party connection. However, by no means all of the of the American volunteers were members of the Communist right, Party. Right. There were some who were sympathizers, but then there were a, another group of people who just felt that it was wrong what was happening in yes. Spain, and they wanted to go. And then another group, it was something to do in in the Depression sure. when they weren't making enough money here. It was an adventure. Adventure. If they, they were all young. Yes. Um, and they didn't. They didn't have any. Uh, they, they they were as far as I know, not one of these persons was married. They didn't have a family. Right. So they, this was a matter of it's something to do. Armies tend to to feed you three times a day. Yeah, and that's a maybe big deal. you'll get some pay. That's a big deal. But they didn't know anything about. They didn't probably didn't understand the passport implications <laughs> or the issues of the neutral. But one of the things I pointed out, I was the one in one of the hearings about that the plaque. Um, which you described the story um, was held in the uh, in the state house, and that was a hearing, a, a, a bill that was brought up, which said that um, uh, the, the public money will not be spent on any monument which is in honor of people who broke any U.S. law. Any and U.S. law. So that, that covers that, a lot that, of territory. I, I was, that covers a lot of territory. <laughs> no, but if you so that didn't. So they said these volunteers were breaking the law because they knew it was illegal to go to Spain. Sure. Well, they not not all of them knew that. But ah, anyway, interesting. Well, okay. Uh, are you going to also penalize all the American and Canadian people? Well, I shouldn't say Canada, but all the American people. We were neutral till Pearl Harbor. Yes. Who went to fight in the Royal Air Force in the Canadian Royal Air Force, which was quite illegal. Yeah. There were thousands of volunteers from the United States who went to England and to Canada to fight Hitler and Mussolini. And, 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 and they were breaking the law because the, yeah, the Neutrality right. Acts had not changed at that point. Uh, I know. Anyway, so the, and, this it, was a much larger group than the, um, the 2,800 American volunteers to Spain. And many, a great many of the survivors of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade fought against the fascists again. In the Second World War. That was especially War. moving and uh, incredible. And after that, we're, we have just a few minutes left. Getting back to New Hampshire, uh, Attorney General Louis Wyman investigated and harassed mm. some of these people. He focused on Owen Smith in particular. Tell us a little bit about those cases. Well, Owen Smith was unusual in that he was a graduate student, uh, and he was older than the other volunteers from the state. And he, um, he already had a, a credential, and was a teacher. He, he was an instructor at UNH before he volunteered. Um, I don't know a lot about him, partly because when he died in the Midwest, um, I think it was in Ohio, he was teaching in Ohio, and in the early 50s, he got very depressed and he committed uh -huh. suicide. So we don't know a lot, but we do know that it was unusual that he was a graduate student who'd finished his degree and was already teaching. So I guess he was, you could say he was the only faculty, he was actually technically a UNH faculty member. Mm. So he was the only one there. Uh, we do know that he um, was, uh, was a scientist. And um, uh, besides that, uh, we just don't have, because we don't have papers or know who the family was, uh, there are a lot of blank spots in Owen Jefferson's life. But he was definitely one of the heroes. 
and he got harassed in the 1950s. And yes. I do want to mention Peter yes. Carroll's book, It Came to Me, The Odyssey good. of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Very good book. The I, Odyssey of the, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. The Odyssey, yeah. It's, that's, uh, that's a good he one. did brilliant research. I, I do remember one thing, that the UNH uh, alumni office was contacted by the Attorney General's office during the Attorney General, Louis Wyman's, and they said, we're trying to trace Owen Jefferson. Hmm. What, what do you have? What records do you have hmm. on him? And the UNH alumni office answered, um, the last contact we have, they gave a date, uh, deceased. Well, I could have told them to go uh, take a... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know, but know. The, and that, and that, they were just simply following. But, um, they and they didn't know, I, I don't think he, they even, UNH even knew um, that he'd been uh, to Spain. Wow. They, they didn't know that. Yeah, so. and and that the, the, what they went through in the fifties for being premature anti-fascists, I could never figure out yes. what that. T- I mean, how can you be a premature anti-fascist? That's uh, a very well, silly term. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't get it. And, <laughs> and you know, in nineteen thirty eight, when the war was winding down, uh, Congress created the House Un-American Activities Committee. I was wondering if this was yes. related to to what was going on in, in Spain at all. The, uh, well, yeah, they were in on the um, yeah, yeah that, in thirty eight that uh, was created. The same year as Munich and the yeah. same year as the withdrawal of the international brigades. And I wanted to ask, I, we always try to go out with, with a relevant song, and I have one here by a group called Quetzal, which is a kind of bird, uh, called Viva la Quince Brigada. What does that mean? What is that about? Why, that's a popular song from this particular era, as I recall. Well, that's the uh, 15th Brigade. Right. Yeah, it was a popular marching song. Of the uh, and of who the were the fifteenth brigade? Well, I think that included all of the foreign um, brigade, especially the Lincoln and the Washington uh, battalions. Right. Well, if people there's a confusion between battalion and brigade. Oh yeah, it was there was a Lincoln but, battalion uh, which was smaller than a brigade, but they were called the Lincoln. But the fifteenth yeah, included yeah. these foreign elements yes. that were part of the quote international brigades. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I, I got to ask just real quickly: Why is it important for young Americans to learn about this? Well, I think the study of uh, any war is important, but this is, for the 20th century, this was a, if not a rehearsal for World War II, it was a rehearsal for the political battles uh, internationally uh, and how um, the United States could have played a more uh, positive role, especially, but I also think learning about these, quote, foreign things, this we need more of this in our schools. Yes. And the fact that we're so ignorant about, uh, well, the, what is the fifth, you know, the meaning of the, the term fifth column. Right. Um, this is used like, you know, like yesterday on NPR it was used. So just learning about the context of these conflicts really should help us. Yeah, and these are real heroes too. So I'll play, thank you so much uh, for, for well, being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Bert. Sure, and it's great to talk about this. And this is that uh, song dedicated to the International Brigade's heroes in the Spanish Civil War. Thanks so much for listening to Keeping Democracy Alive. Viva la quince brigada Viva la quince brigada Que se ha cubierto de gloria Jai Manuela, Jai Manuela Que se ha cubierto de gloria, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. Luchamos contra los moros, luchamos contra los moros. Mercenarios y fascistas, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. Mercenarios y fascistas, ay Manuela, ay Manuela. Ay Manuela. 